Welcome to another Freshfields Tax Matters podcast. I'm Josh Critchlow with the London Tax Team. Today I'm joined by partners Sarah Bond and Paul Davison to discuss new UK proposals to require large businesses to disclose their uncertain tax treatments. Originally announced in the March 2020 budget, there was then a consultation over the summer of 2020 on potentially sweeping new UK tax disclosure rules. And it's fair to say these got a frosty reception from taxpayers. Paul, can you bring us up to speed with what's happened since then? Sure, Josh. Well, after the consultation last summer, the plan was to legislate in this year's Finance Act and to have the rules applied to tax returns filed from this April. Uh, But then the budget that we were expecting in the autumn was delayed due to the pandemic. Uh, You'll remember that instead we had a series of somewhat reactive announcements on the continuation of the key coronavirus support measures through the winter, including the job retention scheme and the self-employment income support scheme. Meanwhile, though, the government announced that these proposals would be pushed back a year to Finance Act 2022. So uh, in the post-budget announcements on what we were calling Tax Day, 23rd of March this year, we got both the response document relating to last year's consultation and a new document for a second round of consultation. And in big picture terms, we can take a couple of things from the second consultation document. The first is that the government has listened to some of the objections and the concerns that were raised last year. But the second is that despite those objections, some of which were quite fundamental, the government remains committing to introducing these rules in some form. That second consultation is now closed. We made further representations, as did various others, and we'll likely hear what the government makes of those later in the year. So on the usual legislative process, if we see that, we'd see draft legislation in December, and then the government's intention is to have the rules apply to returns filed after April next year. So realistically, that means that taxpayers need to begin to think now about what their approach will be, because we're already in a period that will be covered by returns that are subject to the rules. And so they need to think about uh, matters such as whether they've got the appropriate processes in place to capture things which are within this potential notification obligation. It's probably also worth mentioning in that respect that there are expected to be some penalties for non-compliance to back up these rules. They were initially proposed to be penalties on the individual officers of the taxpayer company, but it now seems more likely that that will just be a fixed amount penalty on the company itself. That's right. Thanks, Sarah. Right. So taxpayers may need to engage with these rules very soon. And whilst we don't have the final legislation yet, we do have a reasonable idea how they will look based on this second consultation. Taking a step back, Sarah, can you take us through what these rules are about and why the revenue wants them? Well, this is another example of HMRC borrowing an idea from tax authorities in other jurisdictions, such as the US, Canada and Australia, for example, where taxpayers are already required to file details of uncertain tax positions, identified either as what is provided for as uncertain in their accounts or as falling into certain specific categories. It seems to be part of a general trend of HMRC seeking more information about the kinds of transactions or tax positions that are likely to warrant consideration investigation so that it can better target its inquiries and make better use of its limited resources. We've seen the same recently in the consultation on enhanced transfer pricing documentation. 
HMRC almost seemed to be looking for a roadmap of issues to investigate. At least that's my take on it. The consultation documents describe the objective of the proposal as to reduce the legal interpretation portion of the tax gap. And if you think of the tax gap as the difference between the tax that HMRC thinks should, in theory, be paid and the tax that is actually paid, what HMRC are trying to do here is get the taxpayer to identify for them instances where there's a difference in legal interpretation, as between the taxpayer and HMRC, which contributes to that gap. Okay, but if taxpayers start reporting their uncertain tax positions to HMRC, do you think this could help avoid disputes in the courts on the interpretation of tax laws? The consultation suggests that this should reduce the number of disputes ending up in litigation. But personally, I think that's a little naive. The number of disputes is only likely to decrease if the taxpayer agrees with HMRC's view of the correct tax treatment. But almost by definition, these are going to be areas where there is more than one reasonable interpretation of the law or how the law applies to the facts, which litigation may still be required to resolve, regardless of whether the potential issue is notified to HMRC earlier than previously. But I think it's interesting and perhaps a bit inconsistent with the stated objective that this proposal is not pitched as a significant revenue raising measure. It's expected to raise less than £150 million over the next five years. And that rather suggests that HMRC aren't just expecting taxpayers to roll over and concede that HMRC's view is the right one. It's more about encouraging large business taxpayers to discuss issues in real time with their customer compliance managers, which is an approach HMRC have been trying to promote for a while. So is it more about changing taxpayer behaviour? Right. There may well be some attraction for taxpayers in having those conversations if it means uncertain tax treatments don't then need to be disclosed. And it could mean disputes end up being resolved more quickly, simply because the issues are aired earlier. But the fairly high churn of CCMs could be a bit of a practical hindrance. The consultation seems to assume that CCMs will know the client's business well, and that should of course be the case, but the reality may not live up to that. And I think there's also a bit of a point about overlap with other disclosure regimes. It may be easier from a compliance perspective simply to include items in a filing that goes in with the return each period rather than have to think about whether they've been covered already elsewhere. Yes, I can see that different taxpayers may experience these rules quite differently depending on their existing relationships with their CCM and also depending on the interaction with their existing disclosure obligations. Let's move on to look at the detailed proposals of the rules. I should mention here that these are not the final legislation, so we only have a rough idea based on this second consultation. How did the second consultation move things forward from the original proposals? There are some welcome changes in the second iteration of the government's thinking, and Paul's touched on a couple of those already, but to highlight the key aspects that have changed... In-scope taxes will be limited to corporation tax, income tax, which includes PAYE and VAT, and the proposed threshold for notification raised up to £5 million, up from £1 million. And the notification obligation and the penalties for failure that I mentioned earlier will fall on the taxpayer itself, rather than an identified individual, and will be aligned with return timelines for the relevant taxes, so notifications will go in the same time as the returns. One of the things that HMRC are also clear the regime should operate as a top-up, 
So the new requirement should not bite if a taxpayer has disclosed the relevant issue to HMRC through other channels, including that real-time discussion with a CCM that I think HMRC are really trying to encourage here. There have also been progress on the triggers for when you have a notifiable uncertain tax treatment, as it's termed. The first round proposal essentially required taxpayers to second guess whether the revenue would disagree with them, which really was a completely unworkable test when you thought about it. The consultation document at the time compared it to the accounting test in IFRIC 23, uh, but that's about whether a position that you're taking in your return is on balance likely to be sustained. And that's just not the same thing as saying that a position is on balance likely to be accepted by the revenue. One might ask, what would that even mean? Does it mean accepted immediately? Does it mean accepted after a few rounds of correspondence, after experts have been involved, after taking advice from uh, the solicitor's office? It was unworkable. The, The revenue now accept that they need to develop a more objective set of criteria, and hence we now have seven different triggers to consider. Okay, that sounds potentially much better than before. Of course, the devil will be in the detail. Sarah, could you describe some of the triggers for us? Well, I think they can broadly be put into a few different categories. The first category asks you whether your proposed tax treatment is contrary to some other known position of HMRCs. So there are proposed triggers covering situations where the treatment is different from HMRC's known position or contrary to established industry practice, or contrary to advice the taxpayer has received, or different to a treatment the taxpayer has adopted previously for a similar transaction. It's not clear whether all of these will remain in the final legislation, but it seems quite likely that there would at least be a trigger based on HMRC's known positions. I agree. That really is is the core component to these rules and I'd have thought it it must be that the revenue will include that in the final legislation. Of course, there's still a question as to what that means. Precisely. And one of the things that struck me about this trigger and what was said about it in the consultation was the suggestion that HMRC's known position could include something from a court decision that's in the public domain. Thinking in particular about a situation where HMRC have lost a case before the first tier tribunal, for instance, and then appealed it, while as a taxpayer you might be able to infer that HMRC disagree with the decision as a whole because they've appealed it, and you can have a guess at what aspects they might disagree with based on their arguments as recorded in the original decision, it's not going to be clear specifically which aspects or what points HMRC might be pursuing on appeal. And I have a live example of that in some cases at the moment relating to the application of the loan relationships unallowable purpose rules to deny interest deductions. HMRC is known to have appealed the first tier tribunal decision in the BlackRock case and some of those with ongoing disputes have been told that HMRC disagree with the position on the just and reasonable apportionment of debits that was taken in that case. But I think it would be going too far to say that is a known position. Yes, I can see it's one thing for HMRC to require taxpayers to check if tax treatments are consistent with the views in HMRC's manuals. But it'd be quite another exercise altogether to keep track of all the positions HMRC are taking in ongoing cases subject to appeal. Paul, can you perhaps tell us about the accounting-based trigger? 
This one uh, looks at the accounting position and tries to piggyback on the IFRIC 23 decision-making process that I mentioned earlier. It's potentially quite a sensitive aspect of the proposals and the trigger is for a situation where a provision has been recognised in the accounts of the company or partnership in accordance with GAAP to reflect the probability that a different tax treatment will be applied to a transaction, different that is to the one that's being filed. So that's intended to capture situations where IFRIC 23, for example, under IAS or another relevant standard requires a business to make a provision to recognise the uncertainty in the tax treatment. And the revenues take on this is deceptively simple. So at the heart of IFRIC 23, there's a requirement to test whether it's more likely than not that a given tax treatment will prevail. And if not, then you have to make a provision in respect of the uncertainty. So it seems fair and you would think it might be easy in compliance terms to require the taxpayer to notify any case where it's determined that it's more likely than not that the filed tax treatment won't prevail. The difficulty, though, is that you only get to that more likely than not test in IFRIC 23 after you've first decided what it is you're going to test. And in circumstances where you might, say, have half a dozen uncertain corporation tax positions facing the revenue, it may be that the right thing to do under IFRIC 23, I understand, is to consider those positions together. And if you do that, the question then becomes, is it more likely than not that we will prevail on every one of these six or however many it is positions? And the answer to that question, are we going to win on everything, more likely than not, is probably going to be no, which then prompts you to make a provision of some kind against the risk that you will not prevail on every single one of the uncertain positions being considered. Nevertheless, it might still be the case that you wouldn't view any of the particular positions as materially uncertain in and of itself. It's just that you don't expect to win every single one. So it's not obvious that that then makes for an appropriate trigger for notification, nor is it obvious quite what the notification obligation would actually relate to. I see. So if this trigger is included in the final legislation, it could require quite a few disclosures of not particularly uncertain tax treatments. So we'll have to keep an eye on that one. And finally, Sarah, what were the remaining proposed triggers? Well, the last two don't really fit into any particular category and are a little bit odd. Firstly, there's a trigger for where the treatment results in either a deduction for tax purposes, which is greater than the amount incurred by the business, or on the flip side, income received for which an equivalent amount is not reflected for tax purposes, unless in either case HMRC is known to accept that treatment. So that's looking to situations where the economic outcome is not the same as the tax outcome, and that difference is not intended. My reading of this trigger is that it may be targeted at cases where the relevant tax treatment follows the accounting, and that ends up giving the business a tax deduction which isn't matched by an economic loss. For example, some of the cases on the fairly represents requirement that used to sit in the loan relationship rules, such as the Smith and Nephew one, where FX losses arose on a change of functional currency. But I would have thought that those are pretty few and far between. Most situations caught by this trigger seem likely to be avoidance cases, which are supposed to be out of the scope of these rules, 
rather than ones where there is a gap in the parties' respective legal interpretations leading to the tax treatment. I agree. This trigger really does seem to overreach, given the wide variety of situations where tax rules will often diverge quite deliberately from accounting or other economic measures of income or expenses, to name a couple of very obvious ones, capital allowances or a dividend exemption. The final trigger uh, is also a tricky one. It covers a situation in which the position being taken is, uh, to quote, in some way novel, such that it cannot reasonably be regarded as certain, and HMRC's position on this is not known. I expect it to be pretty rare that genuinely novel situations, whether that's novel business structures, transactions or products, arise. Or indeed situations where there are various different treatments. There's generally only ever one correct treatment. We'll come back to transfer pricing, I guess. And the difficulty when disputes arise is trying to work out what that is. Another problem with this last trigger is obviously enough, how you determine what is, quote, novel. From whose perspective is that being tested? I'd like to hope that a sufficient number of difficulties with this trigger have been raised in the consultation responses that it's scrapped, but we'll have to wait and see in the final legislation. I'd completely agree with that. I've come across one case I might describe as involving a novel situation where the revenue and the taxpayer had different views of how the corporation tax legislation should apply to the taxpayer's business. But that was quite an unusual set of circumstances because the taxpayer was in a pretty unique position. Thanks, Sarah. So what will you be looking out for in the final legislation? Well, for me, it's the transfer pricing point that Paul just mentioned. A big issue that was raised in the consultation is whether there can be an exclusion for reporting transfer pricing uncertainties. And I think transfer pricing is a bit of a sticky subject here, in particular because the pricing of related party transactions is one of those questions that doesn't necessarily have a right answer. And it's often an area where HMRC and the taxpayer disagree. So that I think, has the potential to give rise to quite a heavy disclosure burden if it's included in scope. The second consultation document hinted that pricing questions could be excluded from some of the triggers, but left open for consultation which those triggers might be. I think HMRC are already well served for disclosure rules when it comes to transfer pricing. For example, including the existing reporting requirements under the DPT rules, And as I mentioned before, the recent consultation on transfer pricing documentation, which also included a requirement for all businesses, not just the largest ones, to produce an international dealing schedule covering material cross-border related party transactions, which could give rise to transfer pricing risk. So it's not really clear to me what it would add to include pricing questions within the scope of the uncertain tax treatments disclosure regime. Thank you, Sarah. And finally, Paul. What can listeners be doing now to get ready for these potential reporting rules? Good question, Josh. I think businesses can start to consider the processes they need to identify things that might require notification under these proposed triggers or something similar to them that emerges in the final legislation. And also, depending on those processes, they may want to think about things they're doing now that could trigger a notification later. It would be better to plan for the notification now and then not need them later than not to plan and get caught out. 
As I've mentioned before, there's also a strong suggestion in the consultation document that the rules won't require reporting, top-up reporting, where taxpayers are already talking to HMRC about something. So taxpayers could also start thinking about points that they would rather raise proactively with the revenue now, as opposed to facing a disclosure obligation down the road. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Sarah. And thank you for listening. For more information, please visit the Freshfields website or get in touch with your usual Freshfields contact.